This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. When you're in a hospital room, whether you're the advocate or the spouse, when somebody tells you something you're not prepared for, your mind goes elsewhere. It leaves the logical need to understand and detail and make decisions, and it goes to the more stressful areas. The best of us, that's an emotional response that happens. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss the real estate bubble in Toronto. Then we'll learn how to advocate for a loved one. We're also going to find out about sex over 60. And lastly, we'll learn about a new treatment for chronic migraines. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. Always nice to be here. So... There are a plethora of chicken little articles that I've been reading, and it's been going on for maybe the better part of five years, explaining how Vancouver and Toronto are in a real estate bubble, and the sky is going to fall, and property values are going to crater, and we're all going to hell. And I thought, you know, rather than just believe what I read, I'd bring in a real estate expert, and we'd discuss it, because it doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense to you? Just the question has my head spinning. Okay. Uh, because first of all, I can't believe you've only sort of been hearing this for five years. Because in my mind, it's been more like ten. Okay, I was being I was being conservative, but I and, think you're uh, right. Yeah. And the other question is, does the real estate bubble have anything to do with if we are or are not going to hell? Right. Well, yeah, I know where I'm going, irrespective <laughs> of the real estate holdings I may and or may I'm not. Related have. to you personally, I just the state of the world asked me, you know, yeah. ponder that kind of thing for many reasons it's for, these it's, days. It's for another show, but I hear you. For those that don't know, let let's try and encapsulate what a real estate bubble is? So typically, first of all, real estate bubbles happen after a significant run-up in in real estate prices when things become unattainable. Right. Uh, And typically, they're followed by a significant decline in prices. And the difference is, and this is why people get nervous about real estate bubbles, is they're different in many ways than a stock market bubble because they usually last longer. And they usually have more significant impact on the economy. Right. When you look at the most significant, I think, internationally that we've seen, you know, Japan struggled for a decade after a, after a real estate bubble. Right. Uh, and really couldn't find 
the sort of uh, impetus for the economy to get going at the pace they were used to prior to that. So people always worry about these things, and for good reason, because everyone's trying to avoid it. And the question is, do we ever have the tools to be able to do that? Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's lots of issues in there, right? Because for, I think, most Canadians, most of their wealth is tied up in their home if they happen to own it, number one. Number two, uh, you know, in particular in Toronto, it's, it's an issue, you know, leaving aside the issue of affordable housing, housing in general is an issue. Moving up, moving down, staying in the city that you want to live and work in, it's an issue as well. And the governments at various levels have tried various tools to deal with it, whether, you know, it's a, a tax on foreigners owning property or land transfer tax, tax rates uh, that have increased to sort of preclude uh, speculation on properties. There's all sorts of things the government tries to do, as you said, to questionable effect, right? So let's break it down a little bit. Yeah. First of all, there's a question of a run-up or a significant run-up in, in real estate values. Right. And I think we all can agree that that's happened. No question. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You've got to realize, I think we all do, that for a long time, there are many factors that are pushing for that to happen in a natural way. First right. of all, people live in a much more concentrated way than they did 50 years ago. The, the world is far more based around big cities, and yes. a lot of the rural areas haven't experienced anywhere near the growth of, uh, that big cities have. So it makes sense that there are more people coming to key urban areas. So that is one of the drivers of what increases demand. And if you don't have supply to keep up with it, prices escalate. Right. And, and let's look on, looking on the supply side, when you have uh, issues like green belts or, or you know, uh, transit plays into a, a big part of it, you know, how, how does your city grow? Well, if it doesn't, then you run out of well, and you have, And yeah. you have factors that you can't even control beyond transit and, and uh, green belts, right? Yeah. You've got Lake Ontario that sort of uh, yeah. stops growth going south, right? right? And yeah. you've got natural things that, you know, like uh, you know, highways and, uh, and, and distances from where you want to work, right. right? That sort of are macro level things in a city. Uh, that say, okay, how far can you push out? And then what are the alternatives in terms of suburban neighborhoods that people can move to? So so that's one of the, the issues, right? right. That then, you know, there really is an underlying will, I think, across this country politically and personally by people to enable people, more and more people, to own real estate. Correct. Everyone feels like that is the stepping stone to break the poverty cycle. Let's get as many people as possible into home ownership so that they have this growing asset that appreciates over time and that instead of spending money on rent, they should be investing in something that at the end of the day is going to go up in price and you're going to have an asset for when you retire. Right. So, and and right. also because if you own the property, you'll take better care of it and the governments don't necessarily want to be in the business of owning real estate anymore either. Right. On top of that, and now if we're talking about Toronto in particular, right, yep. we're in an enviable position that when you look at the state of the world, people from all over would like to be here. Of course. It's safe. It's free. It's uh, multicultural. Yep. And for all the things that we like to complain about, it's a pretty fantastic place to raise a family and to get educated and to break the cycle that's so impossible to do in so many places in the world. You can come here and by the second generation, if you came from abject poverty in wherever you came from, if you work hard and you're frugal and your kids get a good education, you can live that dream of seeing your kids get to the middle class in in one generation. And to me, that's one of the most exciting things in the world. It's the Canadian dream that used to be the American dream that I'm not sure exists for them anymore. I'm not sure, but it's certainly right. I mean, there are probably parts of the states where they still have it, but right. you're right. But it seems to be of lost on middle-class America. But it's certainly what people 
come to Canada or to Toronto these days in hope of. And, and on top of that, there are other people with lots of wealth from around the world who look at us as a safe haven. So let's summarize by saying this is a pretty great place to come to. So that's another factor that sort of drives growth. So we're talking, we just talked about all kinds of things that drive demand. And the question is, is there enough on the supply side to be able to keep up with that demand? And if that's out of balance, prices escalate. Now, the question is, when do you sort of shift from escalating prices into being what people would call a bubble? Okay, so let, let, let's take a break. Let, let's mm-hmm. take a step back. So there are indicia of a bubble, and then there's reasons to believe that maybe it's not a bubble. Maybe, maybe we've become a world-class city, and that's just the way things are going to be going forward. You know, like, you know, it's, it's uh, used way too often, but you know, the, the term the devil's in the detail, right. it's, it applies for everything, and it certainly applies for this. Right? When we look at, a, at defining a housing bubble, and I don't want to go back to sort of yeah, yeah. my uh, economics undergrad, but yeah, you know, there are factors yeah. that you look at, right? Yeah. So number one is like a ratio of income to house prices. Which is completely out of whack for, for anybody who's trying to, to save to, to buy in Correct. Toronto or Vancouver. But then, you know, yeah. some of that is driven by low interest rates, right? right? So you have to do the calculations and say, how much does that really affect affordability, right? Then there's a, a sort of another factor that people sometimes use as a ratio of deposits to income. Can people afford the deposit on the house? And I think people can afford deposits. And one of the lucky things in this country is that we've got a really conservative and stable banking industry and banking regulation. Right. We got a superintendent of financial institutions who keeps a close watch on five major banks that really sort of set the tone for this being a country that doesn't overborrow in the way we saw in the states in the last financial crisis. Right. Right. So there are certain you know uh, safeguards in place to make sure that we don't do things in too obnoxious a way in terms of uh, of how much we buy when we don't have a job or we don't have income right. or we can't afford anything like it. Yeah. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people coming from abroad with access to capital who compete for the same housing. And if there's not enough supply, then uh, sort of the highest bidder gets the, the real estate. Right. So are there people that are being kept out of the market and feel that it's unattainable, but is it really unattainable? That's a good question, right? And on top of that, We've got a huge baby boomer population who have built up equity in their homes, who at some point say, I want to move from my house to something smaller, a townhouse, a condominium or whatever. So for those people, income isn't necessarily the driver. It's built up equity in something that has gone up. And there are there people, are there enough people, professionals, foreigners, big earners, that kind of stuff, who can buy those homes and give them the equity to continue to participate in an expensive condominium market. It appears that there are. Um, right. So, but, but, you know, I'll, I'll say something. The interest rates that you mentioned before impact the market in a different way, I think. And that is, you know, it used to be that if you headed into retirement, you could count on a certain interest rate to for your investments in your RSPs or however you're going to keep your wealth. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. You Correct. know, for people, you know, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, people were earning, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15% on their investments. That doesn't exist anymore. And and what that I think militates is people turn to real estate because they can see the market going up. So they're not investing in stocks or bonds, but they're keeping their money in their house. And I think that's problematic for, for the housing as well. I, I think they're keeping their money in their house. There also are factors, like there, there hasn't been enough rental built in the last 20 years in right. this province. So there's people who extend what you're saying further and they say, okay, I have equity built up in my house. I'm not comfortable with the stock market. I can't get enough return in bonds. Right. Maybe I should go buy an investment property. Exactly. Right? No, no, that's, that's another factor, right? right? Now, the good news for that is that has served in Toronto 
to make up for the lack of new rental construction because right. a lot of people are buying and renting out and they have a couple ideas often when they buy something as a rental property. I'll keep it as a rental. Maybe my kids will move into it if right. I bought it in the right neighborhood. Maybe I'll move into it one Eventually, day, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yep. So it's hard to really figure out where we are. All that to back up and say, you know, supply is a big part of the issue, right? It depends how quickly the city is growing, right? And to me, there is room for downward pressure, even in a healthy market, if we could find a way to help supply. If more homes could be built, that takes some of the pressure off. And when I talk about pressure, pressure and pricing doesn't just come from six people bidding for the same property. Right. It also comes from trades that get greedy. I could, I'm, I'm a formwork company that pours concrete in a condominium project, for example. Right. I have 20 people chasing me to do work. I'm going to price it. 20% higher than I think I, my uh, really real pricing should be because I can pick and choose my jobs, right? All these things, multiply that by all the trades and uh, all the consultants and all that stuff, and you start getting people who are making a bunch of money all the way through the process. And to me, if you had more supply, there's room for everyone to say, we're going to do a little bit more, but make a little bit less on everything else. And there's room for prices to, to de-escalate by a bit and have what people like to refer to as a soft landing. There's not necessarily a disaster on the horizon. I would agree with you, save and except for our federal government's ideas that they should be ratcheting up the interest rates. And now, with interest rates so low, doesn't you know a quarter point here, a quarter point there doesn't seem like much, except as a proportion of the existing rate. So if you're sitting at 3%, you know, a half point raise is a significant percentile increase for somebody who has to have carrying costs over, you know, over the course of their mortgage. I know? agree with you. What, what is going to be interesting is how far they can do that, because let's not forget at the same time, no matter how levered we are, yeah. our governments are more levered. For right? sure. Their amount of debt. So do they want to be paying for their debt at, at too high a rate? And the, the only answer to that is if they can build productivity and get the economy humming in such a way to support higher interest rates or significantly higher interest rates, then I'm sure they will. But I don't see that happening to a either. significant degree in the next little while. And I think the bigger problem is we have uh, – United States have been spending like drunken sailors. I mean it's not really discussed. Obama had to do it because of where their economy was. But Trump, even considering he's coming on the right uh, wing side, has spent significant amount of money pumping up the economy, and that only drives inflation. So I'm not really sure where we're going. So let's try to summarize in a way that's interesting for your listener. Yeah. To me, when you get a market where it gets really expensive uh, and some people can't afford it, sometimes patience is the best approach. I agree. You need to sort of take a step back. And I think patience brings some interesting solutions to the problems as well. I'm starting to see locations that are smart, that haven't been exploited before in Toronto, that are starting to see new development. You may need to be a little bit pioneering into what location you move to. Right. And you may not have thought that this is where I'm going to retire to or buy my first home five years ago in these locations. But there are things like a cross-town link and new transit and whatever that open up new neighborhoods. And it may be that over time, people are prepared to build projects at lesser prices in some of these new neighborhoods. And I think that if we're patient, having a healthy market, even with strong prices, will will 
bring smart people to the table who will be able to answer the supply problem and be able to sort of answer what a lot of people are hoping for, which is, I'd like to own something. I'd like to be in a good neighborhood. It may be that that neighborhood that you dream of is just starting to exist today, but I believe there will be solutions in Toronto over time that are going to sort of help solve some of those problems. I think you're right. And I, and I think uh, I think the key is also solving the transit problem, you know, which is probably a discussion for another day. We only have a few seconds left. But my view is, you know, once they figure out the crosstown, once they figure out not just how to get people in Toronto across Toronto, but people outside of Toronto in to do their work, I think that's going to alleviate a lot of pressure too. We should talk about that another time because I really think at a provincial level, some of these moves to take more transit uh, under the, the purview of the province are going to open the door for introducing Canadian pension funds into infrastructure projects that couldn't be done when the city was overseeing this stuff just because they don't have the mandate to do it. And I do think that if it's done right, we'll see an opportunity in the next decade to get a lot more transit to solve some of those problems. Well, let's talk about that next time. Right. Okay, fantastic. We've got to take a break. But when we return, we're going to learn how to advocate for your loved ones on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24-hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24-hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, David Bernstein, graduated from the Schulich School of Business with an MBA in 1992. He worked at marketing and senior management with Procter & Gamble and Reckitt Benckiser in Toronto, Tel Aviv, Amsterdam, and London. Following in the footsteps of several family members, David entered the seniors' healthcare field, acquiring Caregiver Services Limited in 2014. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you, Jimmy. Nice to see you. Last month, we talked about having that discussion with loved ones regarding their lifestyle decisions in retirement, which was really helpful. Today, we're going to learn what it means to advocate for your loved ones and how to effectively do it, because I think you have some good ideas. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. When we talk about advocating, which is a big word, what does that mean to you? In essence, it means looking out for someone else's interests. Right. When uh, your parent or somebody, let's say, uh, more aged is in the hospital, it can be a very lonely experience. There's a lot going on, very stressful. Everyone's heads are, you know, focused on other things. But there's a lot going on that someone needs to pay attention to, right. if only to gather the information to make decisions later or to act quickly on decisions or things that need to be done. 
And so advocating means to sort of take some responsibility to help lead that process, to pay attention to everything, to organize things, and to be there as needed. And to be an effective advocate because, you know, we have a wonderful health care system, but it's a public health care system, and sometimes resources are thin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the squeaky wheel... Uh, is the one that gets oiled, right? So, you know, you want to be effective in your advocacy. Exactly. What's interesting is the need for a family advocate is just as strong in a private system. Just because it's a private system doesn't mean that you don't need somebody beside you listening to what the doctors and the nurses say, making sure that they're sharing information, uh, helping to make decisions. Even in the private system, you don't have a private doctor or nurse who are with you 24 hours a day. So when you're in bed, in the hospital bed, dealing with whatever you're dealing with, or you're, and let's say um, their spouse is there too, but very overwhelmed by the reality of possibly what's going on, somebody still needs to be having a level-headed conversation with the doctors, the nurses, and I believe that's independent of a private system, a public system, or where you happen to be? You know, having sat in, unfortunately, on some of those discussions with doctors, with my father, you know, it's incredibly emotional for the person who's hearing the news. You know, it's not always good news. It's, you know, it's difficult to remember what's being said. You know, it's it's a challenge to keep the emotions out of it. And, you know, the doctors are used to doing it. They do it all the time. Exactly. But as a family and a patient, this is probably the first time you're hearing these sorts of words and what it means and risks. I, and, I guarantee you, know. you Because I also went through a similar circumstance with my father. I guarantee you when you're in a hospital room, whether you're the advocate or the spouse, when somebody tells you something you're not prepared for, your mind goes elsewhere. It leaves the logical need to understand and detail and make decisions, and it goes to the more stressful areas. Right. The best of us, that's an emotional response that happens. Right. Now, in certain circumstances, seniors don't necessarily get effective advocacy on their behalf. Why do you think that is? Well, some of the reasons are practical, uh, and some of them are just circumstantial. I've had a lot of clients who do not have a spouse. Right. Number one. Or their spouse isn't 100%. Right. Second circumstance. Or their spouse is is 100%, but they're overwhelmed by the reality. Another circumstance. Yeah. When children get involved, which is very helpful quite often, they're still sitting there. They've got the stress of what's going on with their parents, but they're also thinking about my kids are coming home from school. Are they prepared? Is my husband or my wife coming home? Right. To I'm, ta- I'm taking off time from work to have this meeting, and mm-hmm. I've got to get back to the office, exactly. but I want to have questions answered. Everybody you know? is distracted yeah. by very credible things to be distracted by. Right. And so the question isn't, to, you know, are we all going to be perfect advocates, and is everyone going to get perfect advocacy? It's what can we do to prepare right. to do the best we can so that when the circumstance does occur, if it does occur, that we can be the best advocates we can be and hope that we can facilitate uh, good decisions and good outcomes. So let's talk about that. I mean, you have some ideas on how to be a more effective advocate. What would you recommend? What's your what's the first thing that we well, should look to? Uh, somewhat like our discussion uh, last month about having the conversations. It's a conversation I think you should have with the uh, assuming you have uh, you're the child of uh, or the spouse, I guess, of somebody who is aged. It's a conversation you should have before something goes wrong. Right. So that 
that you have, for example, all the doctor's information, phone numbers, uh, medication lists, uh, maybe a journal with uh, some notes on some things you've been concerned about, right. understanding if there's a power of attorneys and who they are, and maybe if uh, the discussion of the living will and their wishes. The more you understand about your parents' uh, situation before an event occurs, the better off you'll be being an advocate and being able to make good decisions or get good information when something does occur. So to be a little bit more specific, I think that at some stage when anybody anticipates that that health issues might become more significant over time, that they begin to put together a binder, a health right. binder, so that when an event does occur, assuming it occurs, they bring that with them, and they're re- kind of ready to go to something. Right. It's, it's almost like having your own uh, medical records handy, but it's more expansive, right? It has perhaps the name of the lawyer, the name mm-hmm. of the investment counselor, and issues about medication on pre-existing conditions, perhaps, and, exactly. and stuff like that. Well, it's a perfect example. You know, I'm, I'm in this business. I'm aware of it all the time, these types of issues. I, I speak to family members constantly about being an advocate because quite often we will put caregivers in hospitals overnight so the client won't be alone. Right. And so I'm visiting the client's families in the hospital trying to help facilitate whatever's that they, whatever it is that they need. And what almost everyone goes through is this experience where you've just been through an appointment with a doctor or a nurse, and once they leave the room, seven questions pop up into your mind that, that you, you wish you ask, yeah. should have asked. Right. Now, that's going to happen anyway, but if you can be a little bit more prepared, write down those questions and t- try to anticipate them, have a conversation with whoever's you know not doing well, their partner, their spouse, or whatever. So I think that's of great importance, that first we recognize we're not going to be perfect, we're not going to ask every question. But almost more important is to recognize that you're not being rude if you ask the doctor or the nurse to slow down, right. to say it again. Yeah. to explain that word you've never heard before. Right. This information is really important, and they're really busy. They're doing the best they can. They really want to give you everything they can. They're, there's no way that they want to do anything but be helpful. That's why they're, you know, they do this for a living. But that doesn't mean that they're perfect or that you know, you, they have as much time as you'd want them to spend with you. Right. So it's also important that you go in with the assumption that you are an advocate. So what you're trying to do is help facilitate the best possible outcomes for the person, you know, for your loved one. And that often means getting somebody who's not ready to talk to you to stop and talk to you. Right. Getting them to say it again. Wait, having them wait while you write down what they just said. And understanding that, you know, this is an ongoing process and you can't be shrill and you can't be combative and, you know, you have to be, I wouldn't say aggressive, but, you know, you have to, you have to be confident and you have to sort of put yourself out there. But, you know, being, a, you know, where were you? Why aren't you explaining what's going exactly. on? That you know, all, all that stuff never helps, right? No, but you sh- I don't think you should be shy to be assertive. Right. Respectfully assertive. I call it the friendly bulldozer. <laughs> you, you get what you want, but you're polite along the way, right? Exactly. Because you, they understand what you're doing. They don't take it personally. You obviously need to be respectful. Um, They've got their hands full, but, you know, squeaky wheel, you know, does get the grease. And um, now, obviously, if you've got a hospital floor with a thousand people all trying to get the grease, (laughs) something has to give. Right. But, you know, you don't worry about that. You worry about your loved one and making sure you get quality time with the people who have the information you need, that you're taking good notes um, and that you're discussing it with the whoever else is in the family. Right. And when you say discussing with the family, that's another issue too, right? Mm -hmm. There's certain people 
people who are going to be more effective communicators better listeners, which is a, also a key skill when mm-hmm. you're communicating with, with doctors and nurses. Uh, you know, we were talking about this off air and sort of organizing the family, who's going to be there, understanding who's capable of doing what is also going to impact on your ability to advocate on mm-hmm. behalf of the loved one, right? Absolutely. If possible, it would be good for a family to understand who's available before an event occurs. But, you know, the odds of that happening aren't so great because right. uh, events occur, everyone's doing whatever they're doing. And usually someone steps up and takes the lead. Yeah. Takes the lead. But after that first sort of situation where you're the most stressed and there's the most new information coming, you should circle back with the other family members who are involved or should be involved and have a conversation about what's going on and who has time to participate. If it's you're going to share the burden, no problem. Agree to share it and how you're going to share it. Right. If one person's going to take the lead, not a problem. Have everyone be comfortable with that, take the lead, and find a way to make sure that you can share the information with them. Right. And I guess advocacy takes a certain amount of energy, so it would be helpful to sort of offload some of the other responsibilities, right? And that's where you can come in. Yes. Now, one of the other uh, sort of dynamics in caregiving or as a family member providing care is it's very hard to be focused on the advocating the compassion that you want to share with the person who's sick, and the simple emotional response that you're going through, which is significant. So quite often, if you can afford to have a a private caregiver who can take care of some of those things, you can offload some of the day-to-day things like getting the the ice chips, uh, helping them get it to and from the bathroom, spending the nights with them, because if you spend all the nights with them, you're just you know, you're not going to be very capable of yep. helping out in the future. Right. And so that's often an opportunity is to uh, hire somebody. Maybe you have a family member who can do it for free and do those kinds of things and you can work something out within the family. But whoever's the advocate, ideally, they can focus on that more than anybody else. Right. And other people can help with the more compassionate side of what's required in a hospital. Fantastic. That's very helpful, David. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. If somebody has some questions about effective advocacy, though, what can they do? We have on our website an advocate's guide, which is a pretty simple list of things to go through and consider that anyone's free to go and download or take a look at, take notes from. It's on the website, caregiverservices.ca. Fantastic. You'll come back uh, next month for us? With pleasure. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about sex over 60 on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. The Big Carrot has been advocating against GMOs in our food system since 1999, and they are the founding members of the Non-GMO Project. This food label provides verified non-GMO choices and protects our right to know what is in the food that we're feeding our families. October is non-GMO month, and to celebrate on October 15th, the Big Carrot will donate 5% of the sale of non-GMO project verified products back to support the mission of the organization. Be sure to look for that butterfly. The Big Carrot, living better together. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
Carlisle Jansen is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. She's also the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. And she's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. Watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. Welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure. In the October issue of Tonic, you wrote a great article about sex over 60. And I thought it would be particularly apropos to bring you in uh, to discuss the issue on the show. So sex over 60. Mm -hmm. Is sex over 60 the same as sex under 60? (laughs) Well, you know, the media wants us to think that everything ends there, right? right? That you're no longer interested, that your body doesn't work the way it used to, that you can't do those crazy acrobatic positions anymore. I wasn't doing them to start with, Carl. <laughs> and that, you know, you should just give up. Because, right. you know, it's like you can't make babies at that age, so why do you bother? And that's what the media wants us to think. But there is a group out of Ottawa called the Optimal Sexual Experience Research Team. Great name for a team. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I want to be part um, of that team. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz is actually the lead. She's been talking about sort of optimal sex for a long time. And so she thought, well, let's talk to people over 60 who've been in satisfied relationships for over 25 years and get a real pulse on actually what... The, What's going on? What, what is happening? Yeah. yeah. And what she found is that people were enjoying sex sometimes even more and having the same amount of sex as they were pre-60 or when they were in their 30s. It might look a little different, yes. but that they were actually in a lot of ways more satisfied, which is really what you want out of it. I would think so. Well, that's good to know. Well, let's find out why. Why is that? Why are why are people enjoying sex into their 60s when that's not really the perception of what's going on? So I think when you're 20s, 30s, 40s, you sort of expect that everything's going to work. And when it doesn't, you get really frustrated. You give up. You stop having sex. Mm-hmm. Um, you think a pill's going to fix it. And we're really stuck in how we do it. And I think that once you hit you know, we get older, around 60, we're used to adjusting, okay, so I don't go out dancing all night long, you know, I might used to swim for a mile, maybe I'll go a half a mile, you know, my eyes don't work the same as they used to, and we're adjusting our schedules, we're used to being creative and figuring ways around it, but still enjoying our lives. And I think that's the difference. They found that people were more creative, more adaptable, they were trying different things, and our expectations change, and that what we're looking for is satisfaction, not, you you know, how many orgasms or how often or how many wild sex positions we're looking for quality and connection. Yeah. And I, I guess expectations, it almost becomes easier because if you're not being marketed to, right, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> you know, like if the condom commercials and right. the wild yeah. sex moves and, you yeah. know, the beautiful people, yeah. if, if you don't exist in that realm, right. well, then you're free to do whatever makes you happy, right? To some level. I do think that a lot of the negative connotations about, you know, the dirty old man or the, right. the unsexy lady or whatever you know, I think those do affect us. But I I think that a lot of us just decide we're going to forge forward and we're going to be sexy anyways, and we're going to reclaim our sex lives anyways, and we're going to have a good time no matter what other people think. And that can be freeing in and of itself and saying like, I'm going to do what I want to do. Right. One of the one of the tools or one of the yeah. aspects that you, you mentioned in the article was uh, the notion of unlearning. Yes. What did you mean by that? Well, so uh, unlearning the 
kind of the roadmap that you're supposed to follow when you have sex, that, you know, it's supposed to be intercourse um, and it's supposed to, you know, start this way and end this way. And I think also, you know, in terms of timing and when things happen, people realize that, you know what, so if I can't have intercourse, you know, I can can rewrite the rules. I can unlearn that that's the way that satisfying sex happens. And, you know, in particular for a lot of women, it's not necessarily the most satisfying. And I find a lot of men or in relationships with women are like, what you mean? Like, that doesn't matter so much, you know? And they're realizing that oral pleasure, that erections don't have to happen, that you can have a great time without orgasm. Whereas these were all the things that they learned were sort of the markers as to what makes it successful. Right. And they unlearned that that might not be what makes it successful and what makes it satisfying, that there are other markers and that they can have a great time even if their bodies don't respond the same way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And again, it's a question of expectation, right? I mean, in some ways, limitations are freeing because if you understand your limitations, you can sort of, our brains are wonderfully elastic and we can work our way around it. Necessity is the mother of invention. Exactly. (laughs) And and you talk about flexibility and openness, right? That's That's another key aspect. Yeah. And one of the things that they talked about was anxiety. And I think when we're younger and things don't work, we get really anxious. And they talked about how as we get older, we're like, oh, okay, we sort of recognize things are going to change. I'm not going to be anxious about that. How do I work around it? Whereas I think when things don't work and we're supposed to be virile and we're supposed to be sex gods and goddesses and we're supposed to be powerful in whatever that means, as we get older, it's like, okay, it's not working. So rather than getting anxious about it, why don't, like, what do you want to do? What works for you? Oh, you want to do more of that? Okay, I can do more of that. You know, and yeah, I get pleasure from that. So I think uh, part of it is being open to new things, being open to new ideas, learning new things, and figuring out what actually brings you pleasure as opposed to what's supposed to bring you pleasure. Right. And, you know, that openness to new ideas and flexibility, I think, also partially derives if you're if you're with a long-term partner, you know, you're looking for new things too, right? Sure. I mean, you you yeah. want to keep that relationship going, doing the same things over and over again for decades as opposed yeah. to years. You know, the cumulative effect is you, you, you still love that person. You still want to be with them. So you're looking for new and different ways to be with them, right? I think so. And you get more comfortable with each other right. and you know that, you know, other things don't work so well. And I think sometimes we become more forgiving and we know each other better. We start to know what we value and that it's not necessarily, you know, checking off how many times a week you have sex. It's more like, how connected are we and how do we feel together? That's more of a of a benchmark as to how we're doing. Qualitative. You also speak of intention uh, mm-hmm. in your article. What, what do we mean by that? So I think that often, you know, we're kind of bouncing around in the bedroom and sort of trying to do things and thinking like, oh, I should try this or this works or that works. And I think that when things don't work as well or we get older, we start to notice a little bit more and say like, you know, I'm noticing that that thing that we used to do doesn't bring me much so much pleasure or, you know, you don't seem to respond in the same way. Do you want to switch it up? Do you want to do something different? We pay more attention to what's working the moment we might be more attentive, maybe we're not as focused on, you know, are the kids going to wake up and, right. you know, I have to get up at seven o'clock to go to work. You know, we have a little bit more space to go with the flow and say, oh, you know, I can switch that up. Or, you know, we're noticing we're aware of our own bodies and we're aware of our partner's bodies. And I think that makes a huge difference. I guess the ability when the pressure's off, mm-hmm. or, you know, the performance pressure is off, sure. you, you can be introspective 
perspective. And I guess that's what you're talking about, right? Sort of yeah. sort of thinking about your place in the relationship and in the act. Yeah. And where do I fit? Where do you fit? And it's kind of like a dance, you know, and we can do, I don't know, the foxtrot or whatever it right. is, right? Um, the but, funky chicken. Yeah. <laughs> but even if you think of a lot of dances, there's the basic moves, but then you can do these other side moves. And right. and I, I think that we know how each other dances and we do that dance a little bit differently and we might switch it up a little um, and we might not do some of the moves we used to. I might not throw you in the air and catch you, but I can do other things that are still lots of fun and might be even more fun or that at least work for my body and give me pleasure. Have we touched upon awareness or mindfulness? Is that part of the intention or is that something different? Um, it's very similar. It's paying attention is a type of mindfulness. And, right. you know, often we talk about mindfulness and, you know, we're talking about like, you know, om right, <laughs> meditation. Exactly. It's actually more of what's happening right now, what's working for me. If I have a thought like, oh, I should do this thing. Hmm. Okay. Does that apply in the moment or do I just leave that? And just coming back to what's happening in the moment. Okay. Well, we have time to cover one more area. When I yeah. think it's the most interesting part of what you covered mm-hmm. in the article, and that is the commonality uh, and the trust that's built up over a long-term relationship sort of yeah. adds another dimension to, to the sex. Yeah, we are mature. We understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we're more mature than we were, yeah, right? So, you know, it's, it's a low bar for me to go on. But I think also we don't care about things the same way as we used to. And yeah. I think sometimes we're like, oh, look, my breasts are sagging. Isn't that funny? You know, um, um, oh, I got more wrinkles, but you still want to kiss me. That's great. You know, you know, oh, you know, I can't roll over the way I used to, but why don't you climb over here and we'll do it this way? Like, I think that with maturity, we accept who we are. We love who the other person is, regardless of what's working and not working, their wrinkles, their sags, whatever. And with maturity, we are just open to who is this person in front of me today and how do we want to, how do we want to express our love for each other? And I think that's what's really beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful and encouraging. Yes, lots to look forward to. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's a long way off. But thank you for coming in the show today. This is a really great segment. Lovely to chat. Please come back again next month. Uh, We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn about a new treatment for migraines on The Tonic. And now the soul segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money, and career are sure to be answered. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this week's Soul Segment. The way this works is that I've pulled three cards to get a glimpse as to what to expect for the week. The first card is the energy that has brought you to where you are now. The second card is what you need to focus on right now. And the third card is the energy that's going to carry you into the future. This week, we'll be looking at your career. The first card that we'll be looking at is the Sun card. The Sun card means that lately, in your career, you've been feeling more on the ball than usual. It seems that everything has been coming to you very easily. What you need to focus on this week is the Ten of Wands. This means that if you encounter any burdens, you have to lay them down and move forward. It's important not to be weighed down by any problems that you may perceive. What's going to carry you into the future is the Chariot card. The Chariot means that this is the perfect time to take charge within your career. It's time that you become empowered and inspired to go after what you want while achieving the success that you desire. This is a wonderful week to forward your career. 
So good luck and enjoy. Thanks for joining me and looking forward to connecting again next week. This has been The Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. Migraine is a neurological condition that affects the quality of life of millions of Canadians. Chronic migraine sits on the severe end of the spectrum and is often misdiagnosed. A medical assessment can assist with managing chronic migraines through pain-relieving medications, preventative therapies, and lifestyle modifications. Canadians affected by chronic migraine are not alone. Resources and Health Canada-approved treatment options are available to manage chronic migraine symptoms. For more information about chronic migraine, visit mychronicmigraine.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest, Dr. Ian Finkelstein, earned his Master of Science degree in pharmacology, as well as his medical degree from the University of Toronto. He's also a diplomate of the American Academy of Pain Management. Dr. Finkelstein is the medical director of the Toronto Headache and Pain Clinic and coordinates efforts of a multidisciplinary team. He also lectures nationally and internationally on the topic of multidisciplinary management of chronic headache and pain. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So migraines is something I know a little bit about. I get the occasional migraine, but a close friend of mine actually suffers from chronic migraine, and I know how devastating uh, the condition can be. Let's start at the very beginning for those that don't know. What's the difference between headaches and migraine? So headache is one of those colloquial terms that people use when they develop pain in the head. Migraine is, uh, is a different animal. Migraine is a, is a neurological condition whereby patients uh, have severe head pain and associated disability. So migraine and chronic migraine are on the other end of the spectrum when you look at uh, defining what headache is. Chronic migraine specifically uh, is defined as 15 or more headache days uh, in a month for at least three months in duration, eight of which are migraine days. And these attacks are typically recurrent over time, can be uh, one-sided, throbbing in nature, and typically are worse with physical activity. Many patients can experience nausea, vomiting, and light and sound sensitivity with their attacks. And typically when we look at these patients, we ensure that there's no underlying condition for their headaches. So migraine is what we call a primary headache, and we ensure that their headaches don't have an underlying or secondary cause. Oh, I see. So a migraine is a condition in and of itself, but there's also headaches that occur because, you know, for example, you have the flu or you have some other issue, right? So there's a distinction between the two, correct? Absolutely. As I said, migraine sits on the other end of the spectrum in terms of when we define what headache is because of the disability that are associated with uh, with migraineurs. And when I when I get them, and I, I you know, I'm not chronic, I, I maybe have three a year, I get this strange sensation where I'm in- incredibly light sensitive and I almost see stars and I find it difficult to focus in front of me. Like my, my vision uh, becomes completely blurry at both close and long 
and I have to be in the dark. Otherwise, I find it I'm unable to open my eyes. Is that common? Is that is that yeah? And that's very typical of what uh, patients can experience. Absolutely. I mean, there's a uh, a variety of symptoms that people can present with, and visual is certainly one of the typical ones that we uh, we see in our patient population. Let Let's discuss a little bit more about some of those symptoms that, that people can get. I know you touched on them before. Can you expand on them a bit? Yeah. So most migraineurs will have what we call unilateral or one-sided attacks, but 40% of the population can have bilateral or attacks on both sides. The headaches are typically moderate to severe in nature, and, and the attacks are throbbing. Now, with chronic migraine, interestingly enough, the attacks can be somewhat different uh, in terms of how they present, in that a lot of chronic migraineurs will present with tension-type symptoms uh, and will have migraine attacks in addition to that. So these patients often are underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed as tension-type headaches because they have sort of this combination uh, of both. Some of the patients will present with sinus-type pain and be uh, misdiagnosed as having sinus-type headaches or sinus infections. And in fact, when you delve deeper into their histories, you find out that they actually have chronic migraine. In addition to sort of those symptomologies, there's also triggers for some people too, aren't there? Absolutely. They actually change depending on uh, on the patient. Right. But the typical stuff that we see is change in barometric pressure. In women, we, uh, we find that their menstrual period can bring on a, a headache, certain foods. I was going to say, I understand that for some people it's chocolate. Yeah, chocolate, unfortunately, uh, is a big one. Um, rich cheeses can do it. Uh, nitrates in certain foods uh, can do it. Poor sleep hygiene, lack of sleep or too much sleep can do it. Uh, missing meals uh, can bring on uh, headaches in, in migraineurs. So it, there is a, a large uh, and different variety of triggers. It uh, really depends on, uh, on the patient. And it tends to be actually, interestingly enough, is not just one trigger, but the combination uh, of triggers that will set people off. Uh, and I understand that women suffer from migraines a lot more than men. Is that true? Absolutely, yeah. In my patient population, we probably see a three-to-one ratio, three times the amount of women uh, suffer as compared Yeah, in fact, amongst my friends, I'm the only male that I know that actually does suffer from them. What about age or demographic? Is there any sort of correlation there between migraines? Yeah, so, I mean, typically women will start to develop migraines um, in their teen years, often with the onset of their menstruation, and then they can suffer from migraines right up until menopause. The chronic migraine population demographics we typically see is anywhere from about 30 to 45, 50 years of age. Uh, that's when most of these patients uh, come to light and, uh, and uh, we end up seeing them in clinic. If you know that you have migraines, so you're diagnosed properly, what can we do about it? What sort of resources and treatment options are available? So I think from a treatment perspective, there's two types of treatments that, uh, that we talk about, Jamie, uh, acute versus preventative. So acute treatments would be used for an actual migraine attack. So you develop an attack, you take something, and it aborts the attack. Right. Preventative treatments are what we give patients to reduce the frequency and severity of their attacks. So these are patients that are becoming uh, extraordinarily disabled by their attacks, and they need something to decrease the number of attacks so they can function much better. Uh, and often we use both together. Let's talk about preventative for a second. Are, are there lifestyle changes that people can make, or is it more uh, nutraceuticals or drugs? How does that work? It's a great question. So we look at all of those. So anytime a patient comes in, we do a history and and physical examination, and then we always educate the patient as to the underlying uh, issues with migraine, why they developed migraines, uh, and lifestyle is huge. And so we ensure that they don't miss meals, they stay well hydrated, 
they're exercising on a routine basis, they're sleeping properly. We often uh, tell migraineurs to consume 18 to 20 grams of protein within a half an hour of getting up in the morning. And so with this combination, we then start the discussion about what are the next steps. So we talk about nutraceuticals as one option. And so these are sort of various vitamins and minerals that have had some evidence base uh, behind them. Uh, and some patients actually do very well uh, on this combination. And if those don't work, then we go on to sort of the oral preventative medications. The problem with these medications is patients have to take them on a daily basis, right. and there's multiple side effects to these medications. And then if those are not an option, then we go to the injectable options. One is a Botox therapy, which has been approved for chronic migraine by Health Canada in 2011. And there are a new set of drugs that are uh, coming on the market uh, in due course, which are the monoclonal antibodies against CGRP, which is one of the uh, chemicals or proteins that are involved in the migraine cascade. So lots of options out there. It really depends on, uh, on what patients want in terms of treatment and whether or not they have any comorbid conditions or other medical issues that we need to focus on. So, you know, I'm sure our listeners, when they hear Botox, they're kind of scratching their heads and thinking, wait a minute, isn't that a treatment for wrinkles? So Botox 2011, explain how it works and how, you know, how, how that all came together. As a treatment. So it's a great question, Jamie, because a lot of the patients who will come in and we have a discussion about Botox, they think that it's just for cosmetic use. In fact, 70% of the use of Botox is used therapeutically. And it was a serendipitous discovery uh, back in the 90s where someone was injecting for cosmetic reasons and patients came back and said uh, that their headaches were better. So we now know that when Botox is injected over several areas in the head and neck region, it stops the release of various chemicals that are involved in the migraine cascade. By virtue of doing that, those pain messages don't get into deeper parts of the brain, and the brain becomes less sensitive, if you will, and as a result, we start to see a decrease in the frequency and severity of patients' migraines. So if somebody's taking Botox treatments, are, are there any contraindications or concerns regarding that? There are very few. Uh, there are certain medical conditions, neuromuscular conditions that we can't use Botox toxin, but generally patients can undergo Botox as long as they're not pregnant or they're not breastfeeding. Generally, they, uh, they do quite well with Botox. The injections are done uh, once every 12 weeks in our office. And the nice thing about Botox is once the patients start to do well, they develop this cumulative benefit so that they typically will go longer and longer between treatments. And as their headaches are reduced in frequency and severity, they may be able to eventually come off of their, uh, their preventative treatments. So you mentioned, we have time for one last question. You mentioned another treatment that's coming down the pipe. What, what is that, very briefly? So these are sort of designer drugs that are targeting the uh, CGRP receptor or the uh, molecule uh, itself. And CGRP, we know, is elevated in migraineurs. And by targeting either the receptor or the molecule itself, it reduces the amount of CGRP in a migraineurs system. And as a result, they also will start to see a decrease in frequency and severity uh, of their headaches. The downfall uh, to this is um, it's going to be an expensive treatment, and we're not sure who's going to be covering it. And, you know, long-term safety studies uh, still have not been done, so we're cautiously optimistic about this new group of drugs. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be sure to have you on again soon. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. 
For articles written by Carlisle Jansen, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. And if you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll learn 10 lifestyle hacks for healthy kidneys. We'll discuss non-GMO month, the health implications of legalized recreational cannabis, and yoga for tight muscles. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.